Hello, everybody, and welcome to the HTML All The Things podcast, episode number seven, Troubleshooting Your Code. I'm your host, Matt Lawrence, and I'm joined again by my co-host, Mike Coran. What have you been up to this week, Mike? Uh, yeah, Matt, uh, not too much, uh, mainly because I'm getting married this week, so like I'm still figuring all that stuff out. But um, Well, congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I'll see you there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was I, I, we were already there at the party too, so uh, yeah, some antics yeah. happened there, of course. <laughs> yeah, bachelor party was, uh, I, I guess, it's success. success yeah, for... a one hundred percent success. <laughs> yeah, definitely did, did its job. Um, so yeah, uh, other than that, I've been just doing my client work, grinding away at that, and doing some research for my for the upcoming projects for Hat. So I have some good ideas that I'll definitely hit the ground running with next week. Now that the wedding like preparation stuff will kind of finish right right exactly yeah so what about you matt well basically basically being uh we have like a rather large like client project that's uh, not ready for the for prime time yet but it it's going to be up in the next couple of days so that's kind of like what i've been focusing on kind of helping them and uh i've been like the we are we've been like working like in tandem so it's like it's like a really big site kind of thing so there's like a lot of little nitty-gritty pieces so i've been working in tandem and we've been chiseling away for i want to say like two months or so getting the nitty-gritty down but now that that's coming together it's going to be out soon and then i was doing some pretty interesting kind of social media research uh earlier as well and we'll to try to kind of see like what content people want and that type of thing so that that's kind of what i've been focusing on and then i have a couple of uh, little back little background things i've been setting up for hat like we're looking at getting a subreddit and that that type of thing and that'll of course be announced on the show when it comes to fruition but as we do every week, we have a bunch of segments, and then we have our recurring segment, Web News. Uh, to go over those segments, we got uh, segment number one, troubleshooting methodologies. Segment number two, which is debugging in the browser. Segment number three, which is application slash story time, which you'll understand once we get there. And then, of course, Web News. So these are some jam-packed segments. Uh, and this one is, of course, experience doesn't trump research for Web News. So it's related to one of the other segments we have here, and these pe- segments have a bunch of subsections, so it's going to be a really packed episode this week. So to kick her off, we're going to have uh, segment number one, which is troubleshooting methodologies, as I said. So the first subsection of this segment is process of elimination. So basically, when you're troubleshooting, when something comes up, basically you want to eliminate blocks of your project that can be separated from each other. So let's say, for example, you just start out with a project, you have a menu built and a, and, uh, and a button. And the button, when you click it, the menu appears. Really easy, right? Well, let's say, you know, you start building up the page, right? You start building the page. You start building a bunch of other options, a bunch of buttons, a bunch of whatever. And a bunch of commits later, you go back to test something. You click on that menu button, and the menu doesn't open. So, obviously, you got to start troubleshooting at this point. So, what we would do is we'll kind of start divvying it up. So, more or less, you can kind of divvy it up. Assuming your commits are kind of done in proper chunks and not done like super super frequently you can kind of go in and separate the changes one by one so what we'll do or what i'll do personally is sort of go through and disable stuff so i'll be like okay you know change one i'll disable that change two let's disable it but i'll do it one by one and i'll see like does the button work now no okay turn this one back on now turn off you know segment two does the button work now no okay turn back on segment two let's try segment you know three and i'll kind of go through and slowly slowly start doing it 
once I find a troublesome segment, so let's say like my fourth commit or my fourth little segment was was broken and it was causing the problem, I will re-enable that segment so the, the bug is still there. But then I'll try to, depending on how complex it is, I will try to modularize the actual segment itself or the little commit there and or the the change and basically what i'll do is i'll try to apply the same process if i can modularize it i will and then i'll you know break it up just like i would like i just described with the process of elimination and try to say like oh is it the color change that's breaking it is it the overlap am i applying an opacity incorrectly is there a pointer events property going awry like like whatever is is happening in the function i'll try to slowly do it and eventually you'll you know really kind of get you figure out what the problem is, and then you can do your proper investigation and actually do it. Now, the thing with the process of elimination is it can be applied to more than just programming. So you'll kind of start because you because you'll be probably doing this quite often when you have problems with your with your programming with your code, and it'll become almost like second second hand, like so it'll just become like second nature to you rather. So you'll just kind of like figure out like you know something will happen in your life. So I have a, a kind of an example here. So you know, if you're making some sort of electronic, you'll have like a little chip, let's say, that controls the lights. So let's say you have this all these cir- you have this full circuit with resistors and transistors and the whole bit, and then there's this little controller chip. Well, let's say you did like some basic tests with just the circuit without the chip, and it was working. And then you put in the chip, and it wasn't working. So the first thing you would do is you would do the process of elimination. You would take the chip out, right? kind of set it aside in its own little circuit, and you would do some basic tests and be like, hey, is the chip working? Maybe it's the code that I put on the chip. You know, maybe this this circuit is incompatible with the chip if the chip ends up working. So you, you start kind of, you know, it's just it just becomes muscle memory almost. So you, you start, you know, developing that thing. And you can apply that to so many things in life, car, car repairs, which I don't know how to do still, but car repairs, anything, really. So that's that's kind of one, that's a really big troubleshooting method that I use basically every single day. And it's usually the first thing I do. I immediately start cutting stuff out and eliminating things. The second subsection of this of this segment is don't be afraid to Google slash research. So this will actually tie into our web news segment, as I mentioned earlier. But basically what it means is one of the most common things I hear in the industry from generalist positions, so people that kind of do like a lot of different things. So main one is kind of an IT professional. They work on, you know, computer mice, networks, monitors, desktops, you know, you name it, you know, printers, they're working on it. And I hear that, I hear from them a lot that they're quote unquote professional Googlers. And what they're in fact referring to is the fact that there are so many issues with so many things that they're working with. There's so many models. There's so many devices. There's so many things that there's no way they're going to just know, right? They're, they need to look it up. They need to look things up. They need to see an issue, you know, hear about it or get it in an email, you know, break it down and do the research and like look up the problem. But they're not like people will think that you're squandering or you're not skilled if you're doing that. But that's that's totally incorrect. First of all, you're getting really good research skills and you're getting the job done right. If someone calls you because their their monitor isn't turning on, you know, they don't want you sitting there struggling being like, man, is it the power supply? Like, is it this button? Is the cable broken? Whatever. When you could have just Googled that model number, Googled the problem, and maybe there was like a recall or something, or there was like, oh, this like little switch gets flipped sometimes, like you go in there and like flip the switch or whatever the problem is, right? So that's like, that. like, don't just sit there and struggle. Like you're, you're not worse at your job if you have to research because researching is also a skill. Um, and also another thing is that once you start researching a lot, like you just start, you know, doing a lot of issues and like figuring it out. 
as you figure those issues out, you're learning as well. Like now you know that that, you know, if another customer or another client calls you with that type of monitor, you know, hey, it might be that little switch. Maybe I can just tell them or maybe, hey, you got to reboot and like boot into safe mode and do this thing or whatever. Right. So, you know how to deal with that specific problem. And as you start doing more and more and more of these, you start gaining that muscle memory or that intuition on things that you've seen before. So for example, if you like have done a lot of troubleshooting on desktop computers throughout like your career, even a specific error, like if someone's giving you like an error code and they're like, I don't know what error, like, you know, 438 is or something, it will still trigger an idea in your head because you'll be like, well, when's it happening? When's that? When's this? You'll, you'll know what questions to ask. And then you, you know, you'll hear a lot of guys that are pretty good at IT say things like, you know, that sounds like the hard drive is struggling, but I'll have to take a look in the shop kind of thing because they still need to do an investigation, but they're no longer, you know, doing an investigation abroad. They're doing an investigation within a certain thing and they would never get that intuition or that knowledge without having done literally, you know, possibly hundreds of hours of Googling over the time that they've spent at their, at their specific position. So don't be afraid to Google and research. And we're going to dive more into this in a more conversational form in uh, in the web news segment for this week uh, i'm going to pass it on to uh, learn the source this is the next segment uh, i'm going to pass it on to mike here and he'll kind of go over this this next piece yeah for sure uh so yeah learn the source is an important one uh, in my opinion because it's like the actual knowledge aspect of this troubleshooting so get get to know the problem the issue and really understand why it's happening what's causing it uh, where it's occurring the maybe who wrote it like who wrote the the problem like who wrote the code that caused the issue that that kind of gives another indication of what the issue could be not to like you know make fun of people or anything like that but everyone has their own style of writing code and everyone has their own kind of common mistakes they make so it it could narrow it down even in that way um so make make sure that when you're when you're seeing the issue and you go in uh it's it's very tempting to kind of write a band-aid. So a band-aid could be something like, oh, I'll just comment this out and this feature will won't work anymore, but at least the application will work. So don't do that kind of stuff often. I know in sometimes in production ready environments where there's an emergency that's needed, but make sure it's a very temporary band-aid. When it's something especially that's taking away a feature that people are used to, people will notice it and get mad. Even if it's something small, you'll be surprised at how many people use those small features depending on the mat, like the amount of people using your application. So make sure that you that's a very temporary thing and don't get into that mindset of, oh, I fixed it, I'm just going to go work on my other stuff now. Like, No, that's just maybe one step of your uh, troubleshooting process is getting getting the application to work again. Uh, when when you know the source, when you've written the application, the application itself, which is mostly how Matt and I write, like we don't do very much collaboration with other programmers, which is a whole different topic for troubleshooting. We know the source ourselves because we write it. It's a little bit easier to do the actual troubleshooting with that. I've had some experience doing it with like a bigger team and troubleshooting those. It could get more complicated and uh, you might need some more technique for those kinds of things. But when you know the source yourself, you can almost... You can almost guess where the problem is. So, like, for example, last last week I had an issue um, with one of our applications where they gave it gave a error on checkout and wouldn't display a barcode uh, because of one certain item. And I'm like, oh wait, like I implemented this feature a couple weeks ago. Maybe it's because of that implemented feature that that's happening. And I've already narrowed it down because I know the source of the issue. So, like, 
that me that makes troubleshooting a lot easier and like i was able to fix that that issue in less than 20 minutes and it wasn't a band-aid it was a complete fix i documented the issue and, and we pushed it to production within the hour clients are always happy with that kind of stuff um we, we received like a lot of praise when when you can fix an issue that quickly and when it's not just a band-aid like a lot of people will fix the issue say it's fixed and then it's an actual band-aid and then it'll come back up um and i'm not saying i haven't done that i've done that and that's why I, like kind of learn from my mistakes as well please uh make sure that you really know where the issue is coming from um so the the other thing is is that have a bug log so what I, what that means is maybe have a google sheet or an excel sheet and we're not talking like there's many bug trackers and larger applications for large that that are needed for multi-team, multiple team like environments. But I'm talking for the you know freelancer web contractor. We're talking to you guys right now. Uh, that's our experience, so we're not talking on a big corporate level. Have a bug tracker. Have a have a Google Sheet where you write down the bug for that specific application and how you fixed it, uh, what it affected, um, stuff stuff like that, so that if it ever pops up again, like let's say you need to it was on a branch and you forgot to you know commit those changes into the master uh that that kind of stuff will happen if it's a larger application and you'll you'll have a regression error so you'll have this bug that pops up again and then if you have that bug log you'll be like oh shoot you know what i must i must have missed it when the second time after the merge so it, it's really important to do that kind of stuff as well when you're when you're troubleshooting and it'll save you a lot of time I'm notoriously bad at that right now, but like I've gotten a lot better because, you know, the time is money and you don't want to waste it on doing the exact same bug over again. Although even even if it happens and you don't have a bug log, I've noticed that you kind of pick it up a lot quicker. You're like, oh, wait, well, even if I, I, I knew about this a year ago, like I kind of remember where to look at least in your code. That's always nice. But still have, have a bug log. Definitely important on that one. Um, so yeah, I think, I think that's it for, uh, just the basic general trouble, troubleshooting methodologies. Uh, unless Matt has anything to add, I'm going to pass it off to him for uh, segment two and that's debugging in the browser. Right. So, um, debugging in the browser. So the second segment here, um, we've also broken it up into two, two, uh, little like subsections. So I'll cover the first one. Um, which is uh, UI slash UX debugging, which is my job. So primarily what I'll use is I'll, of course, use the inspect element for a given element that's giving me problems. So I'll literally, like, right-click on on something and then, you know, just go in and take a look. So the main elements that I use within that console window that comes up, and I am using the Chrome one, to be clear. So what I use is I, I'll use the... Uh, elements view at the top so you know shows the dom basically uh, and then i'll also use the styles view below it so then that shows like the css pieces that are being applied and then i'll use the console below it as well so i'll kind of go into each one of those and what i specifically use uh, them for so the elements view what i do is i i use i use the elements view for the for the most part to kind of find fine uh tune my selection process so basically like you know especially if an element is hidden or maybe it's not displaying correctly or maybe i think it should be somewhere and it you know flew off on the page as i'm sure we've all we've all had you can't exactly right click on it and you know inspect element so what i'll do is i'll i'll actually like look it up like you know in the dom and be like hey where is it oh maybe it has zero width or something and and like that's how i'll like fine tune my my thing i also will take a look at how, at my nesting procedure. So more than, you know, more often than not, sometimes you're, you've nested too much, as we all know with, with writing HTML. It's like, oh, I, I could take out a nesting, like a, like a, this whole like div that's wrapping it. So let's take out this wrapper 
and like put it you know put it one level up we don't need this many ne this many like nested like uh, divs going in so i'll do that um quite a bit um, this view is also really great for checking if something is overlapping, um, or if something like I already said is going off the page. But in this case, what I mean is like, let's say you said, um, I want it to be a hundred percent width and you think that it's going to be contained by the screen, but let's say it's like over five pixels. So then when people scroll on a really small screen, typically it's a, a small screen, but when they scroll on a really small screen, it starts to enable that overflow X. And so they can scroll left to right, and it's kind of awkward because they can just do a little bit. It's like just j like almost like it's j uh, jiggling when you're when you're scrolling. So it like this. I I use the inspect element a lot for this type of thing, where I'll like kind of go through my thing and be like, okay, where is this one? Okay, this one's contained. This one's not contained. Okay, well, let's fix that. And like you know, that's kind of like the end of the the um, the tweaking procedure of a site. But like that, those type of things are like you know really help with the polish of it. Um, for the styles views, that's the part that shows the, the CSS that's being applied, specifically the properties, and it's right below it in, in my configuration. What I, what I try to do is I, I, I try out new styles and adjustments in the window. So I, I use a lot of the, the checking and unchecking. So because it shows each, each property, beside each property, there'll be a checkbox. So if it says, like, display absolute, I can, like, click the, the check mark. And it'll actually like make it pull that feature like as if and it'll render the page like as if that position absolute wasn't there. So I'll like mess around with that quite a bit because sometimes I'll put in like a redundant property and I'll just be like, I'll put it in, I'll test it. And if it, you know, I'll, I'll mess around with making it, you know, putting it on or off with those check marks. And if it's not needed, then I'll just I'll just pull it because, you know, there's no point having something redundant. Um Sometimes I'll actually do like an entire set of changes in the style view um, and so I can see them live. Now, to be fair, I'm not saying a whole page or anything like that because like, you know, if you refresh or something, your changes are gone. But like, you know, maybe just like a small section, like I'll set up the skeleton in my actual CSS file and then I'll mess around and be like, hey, like, you know, when I'm engineering something like, like, should I be using absolute? Should I be using like block model? Should I be using flex? You know, cause I have to kind of decide, uh, should I be using grid? So I got to kind of have to decide. So then I'll, you know, I'll mess around with it and be like, oh, okay, I'll display it on block model for this. Like, you know, it's old school. I'll do it like that or flex or whatever. And, and so I'll make like a whole section. Uh, same with colors as well. Um, I will always like uh, what I do and, and it looks really ugly, but it's supposed to. So what I'll do most of the time is, is if you ever see one of my very, very, very early iterations of a site, it'll be literally red. So like just, just your property red, like the brightest red and like blue. So like that, just that generic blue. And they're really, they really clash because there's like so bright and like so bold. But that's the point is what I do is I'll apply colors and I'll sometimes do this in the style view or I'll correct it in the style view. So what I'll do is like, you know, I'll be laying out my stuff and I, and I haven't put much detail in and I want to make sure nothing's overlapping. I'll apply either within the styles view or within the actual CSS file, red and blue, sometimes yellow, if I have like a third thing I want to check. And I'll see, because it's so bold and so bright and ugly, <laughs> where I will see like, oh, this is actually overlapping a couple of pixels. Oh, this is actually like misaligned. I just never noticed. And then, you know, that'll mess with, re with responsivity. So I'll, I'll do that. And then with the styles view or in my CSS, I'll do the correction. I'll put like, you know, the real color red that they want, or maybe it was yellow or purple or doesn't matter. I'll put the real color in and that's what I'll use that for. And I'll be like, okay, yeah, that looks good now. And now I know it's aligned properly and that type of thing. Um, and then that, finally, the, the, the kind of like the last part that I use out of that, like dev view that comes out is I use the console. So, um, 
but what I basically do is like most of my JavaScript is is controlling styles, you know, making menus appear, things like change opac like opacity or opacity and and uh, moving around, you know, changing background colors or what have you. So I'll put a lot of like console logs in my JavaScript just to see how my program is flowing. So I'll like like even just generally, I'll even leave them in until maybe production or sometimes even in production if the person sometimes like a client wants to see if they're more technical. So I'll like literally just have like console logs running in and I'll, it'll be like, oh, uh, changing color. Like if I click a button, it'll be changing color, opening menu, toggling menu, whatever. That helps me uh, debug later. So if I like, you know, if a client wants to change, now I know it's like, I'm, I'm usually very specific with my, with my uh, console log. So if I say toggle, it's a toggle. It's not an on and then it detects if it's on and then turns it off. It's literally just flipping the, the state. So I'm very specific and then I know like, like Mike said, we don't work in a team. So I know what that means when I say toggle and I know how I've coded it when I, when I say on or off. So that, that's, that's how I kind of work with that. I also use console logs to measure things. So sometimes I'll like be messing around and I'll be like, oh, maybe I should do percent base. Maybe I should use like, you know, specific units or like, you know, relative units like EMs or like percents or whatever. So I'll use console logs to measure things. So I'll just like have like a listener that like listens to the window and I'll just like squeeze the window and stuff. And I'll have like this, this, this like myriad of like measurements of like, let's say client width or whatever. And it'll like constantly be updating for me. Right. But I'll be able to see and I'll be like, oh, it's, you know, there's a troublesome spot at client with like eight pixels or, you know, something. Right. Um, so I'll, you know, I, I use it just as a tool more or less. And um, I know that Mike's going to get more into that uh, later. But one other thing I did want to mention, actually, is the device viewer, like the the it's like the responsive viewer where you can like click on it and it will change the device into various um, various like responsive like bits so you can like select, like you click on it and then you can select like oh I want to make it look like a Nexus 6P and you can check that. I use that thing all the time. So it's one of those it's one of those like key features I use and then you can because it like changes your mouse pointer now in one of the more recent updates maybe been about a year now. One, maybe one of the more recent updates you can change the uh you can change the actual like it changes the the mouse cursor to an actual like quote unquote touch. So you can kind of check touch events and that type of thing. So, and it's you, it's massively helpful for responsivity when you're just like dragging the window back and forth and you can see like, oh, this is getting cut off. This is go over too much, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I'm going to pass it on uh, for the next little subsection here. I'm going to pass it on to Mike because he uses the console in a much more advanced way than I do. So uh, go ahead, Mike. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so yeah, I'll go into uh, some JavaScript breakpoints now. So pretty much if you're writing a lot of JavaScript, uh, the console log is helpful and it's great, but um, it, you're just going to get buried in console logs. And it, it's a little bit slow as well, especially if you're like, you know, outputting a massive JSON object, you'll see that it, it, it chokes on the, on those big JSON objects because it's just, it's too much information to, to display in a console. So pretty much what I do is I go into the sources tab of the of the inspect element viewer of that uh, of that viewer and in the sources tab you'll see all your files and if you go to your js files you can you can set breakpoints right on the lines of the javascript and you can set breakpoints anywhere there and then refresh your page and it'll run through and it'll actually break on the points that's happening so you can do it on event listeners you can do it on uh, the actual initialization of your code the load whatever you can you can set breakpoints in any any place you want and while it's on a breakpoint, you can actually see all of your variables in the state that they're supposed to be in at that certain time, which is a huge help. Like to be able to know that your 
you know, scope variables where all of your information is stored about the about the current state of the application. You know, to know the exact va- values at a certain time, like before you send a, re- a request to a server, after you send a request to a server, after you've done, after the client, like the, the user has clicked on a bunch of buttons, like to know the state at which all your variables, your current like global or local variables that are in is a huge help. And it's, and it's a lot quicker than writing console log in every single state that you would need those variables. Cause you could output those variables in a console log at any time you want, but knowing them and then also going in and maybe changing a variable as well. You can do that in, in during a breakpoint and see what happens. So that, that could be good for uh, troubleshooting as well and, and testing. So be like, Oh, if this doesn't work, like maybe if I just change this variable to be uh to be a, you know, a number instead of just a string, maybe that'll work stuff like that. Huge help, huge time saver. I, I recommend everyone to use it. Um, and yeah, that's my that's my main troubleshooting tool. So the, the just just being able to put in any any sort of breakpoint inside any loop that I want, and then going in and seeing what's happening during that breakpoint is is what I use. I probably ninety five percent of the time when I'm troubleshooting. Uh, I haven't used console logs in a while just because of that feature. It kind of completely replaced them for me. But it's still, I, I still see value in it, especially when you're writing code and in like it's a very simple job, uh, JavaScript file maybe, and you just want to see the outputted, the output at that very like time instead of having to go in and set a breakpoint. You can kind of just quickly see, oh yeah, so it's passing it incorrectly. It's fine. Um, so that that's big for me. Definitely, definitely take advantage of those JavaScript breakpoints inside the inspect element uh, sources tab. Um, they're they're really cool to use. And then if you're ever debugging database stuff, so if you ever need to need to simulate almost simulate a server or debug your server um i've used very recently and very like not not a lot but i've used postman it's an application for doing that so you can actually set up fake server calls inside of it and fake responses which is cool so you can uh when you're in when you're in your code and you need to see what how your application will react to a certain server call and you don't want to go and spin up a whole server just to see what would happen you can actually set up a whole server call inside of postman and then link it uh it'll it'll give you you know you know like a a port that it's going to be on and you can actually send it send it from your application from your web application you can send it a, a a call and it'll respond just like you want it to and you can see what happens in your application with that response so i mean I didn't know about this until recently. I used to just spin up a server and just have to like actually code in a server call, a server response. I didn't even think about searching this. So I think that I'm hoping that this helps someone else because <laughs> it definitely helped me. And now I don't have to do that. Postman is free. You can check it out. Uh, I think there is a paid tier, but I don't, I don't know what, what it would be for because everything that I've used it for, it's, it's done just perfectly fine. Um, so yeah, those are, those are my main, I would say tools for debugging. Uh, I think in V in VS code, uh, you can install some, also some debugging tools, so you can actually debug right in VS Code. Uh, I haven't done that too, too much because I don't see a problem in going into my inspect element. I don't see a problem in doing that. I don't think that takes me out of my workflow too, too badly. Uh, so, but you can you can definitely check out the VS Code version of, the, of of it. But it's it's pretty much the same thing. You can actually set breakpoints right into right inside your VS Code, and then you know refresh your refresh your page, and it'll go through it just like your console log. Uh, another thing is is for debugging stuff like view, uh, you might need an add-on into your Google Inspect element. So there's Chrome extensions for that. So you can check it out. Like you can you can you can just Google uh, view troubleshooting Chrome extension and you'll you'll find it no problem. Um, 
And so that will let you do the kind of the same thing that I'm talking about. Go into your sources, see your view code, and be able to set breakpoints inside of your view, create elements, and all that. Um, your, your your view components. So which is obviously really important. Uh, so I think that's it. I think we'll we'll move on to the next section is where I kind of put it all together. Uh, this is the application slash story time segment. So I'm just going to give you a really like. I think should be interesting story about one of my most complicated troubleshooting experiences. Uh, and it's an ongoing experience, to be honest. Uh, we have a Cordova application. So Cordova is a way to make cross-platform applications through web, through web views. So which means that you can have one code base, just like a, a single-page web app code base, and port it to iOS, Android, uh, Windows, any, any sort of... Uh, any mobile platform, which is great. And uh, the reason we chose it was because we kind of were doing a lot of things with the web. Like we, we, we started on the Chrome app apps for actual Chrome bases and Chromebooks. So we needed a one, one code base that could do that. And all the other, uh, like it's a small team, right? Like, so we, we needed it to do Chrome, Chrome OS and Android and iOS. So that's why we decided to do Cordova. It can kind of handle that for us with a little bit of uh, conditionalizing inside for detect and, and app detection and a little bit of, of finagling the actual iOS and Android sides as well. Like it, it's a fairly sophisticated application. So what, what we needed to do, it, it's, a, it's an always on device so that the, the device and a device is always playing media and it's always playing like commercial, like it's always playing like marketing media kind of like. It's either going to be a slide with an image on it with marketing material, or it's going to be a video playing uh, all the time, pretty much. And these devices, like we're using Android devices, they're all different kinds. Uh, we have one Lenovo 10-inch device. We have a 15-inch uh, a device from Outform. Uh, it's a it's just like a media, um, a retail advertising company Outform, and they have their own devices. So we we bought from them we have massive like portrait mode devices that are like human sized big screens and portrait so we have a lot of different devices and because of that we need to do a lot of debugging and testing on them which is a little bit complicated because not only are we debugging the web side we're also debugging the android side because we don't so when a problem comes up you don't exactly know which side it is all the time so you need to be able to communicate between the two so you need to have an interface you need to have an uh, a web view interface between android and uh, the web view that it's run, that's that's running it. So we have like we have an interface where you can pass in the console logs from the web side and pass them right into the Android side. So we can we can actually see all the problems in one view. We don't have to have many different views open. It also helps when you have like a lot of devices and you have you have to log those those problems on all those devices. It helps to have them in all one view. It also helps when you're just charging your device. Um, you, you it's still able to send those those problems to the android side at least and you can get that log later on which is good so the the main issue we have is the application can run no problem for you know an hour maybe two hours but usually after the two three hour mark it would crash that that's an issue we had like long long time ago and those kinds of issues are extremely difficult to troubleshoot because you can't reproduce them it's not a reproducible thing. It's a random thing. So it could be a memory leak. So I was sitting there with Android Studio open and the the, the resource manager. So I was looking at memory. I was looking at uh, processor. Like I was looking to see if, if anything was out of the ordinary, if it was just 
you know, if mem- memory was spiking up all of a sudden, maybe it's a memory leak. If uh, the processor was spiking up, maybe it's just overheating. It, I couldn't figure it out for a really long time what it was. And to be honest, we're still in the process of actually getting it down. But it seemed to be that in very high media centric playlists, when it's just doing a lot of uh, a lot of video playback, the, the WebView media player isn't good at maybe it's garbage collection. So it's not good at getting rid of that content. So sometimes when it would play a video and then another video in a row, it would overlap, I guess, and that would just be too much for our, for the frame buffer and it would crash. Um, and that that led us to kind of put in some limitations on what we can upload, uh, how much how much to upload, but we also needed it to be fairly open. So we still we we optimize the files like so we have a server side server-side uh, compression running that helped quite a bit but that server-side compression then brought in some problems with smaller videos so like if there's a two megabyte video and you're compressing it even more you're missing frames and our the, the webview media player wasn't good at handling that either that would cause it to freeze totally different problem not crashing it's freezing now so the these these things were always issues and always came up and are still coming up, like especially when you're testing across so many different devices. We we have some devices that are really bad at playing media because we're buying very low, inexpensive devices that weren't meant for running a video all day. Like think about running, even if you run Netflix all day on your tablet, on a, on a low cost tablet, it's going to have some problems. It's it might freeze up, it might crash. Now we have to we have to make sure that this is this is a retail environment we're running it at. We can't have it crash. So we have stuff in there where if it detects a crash, it'll reload the application just to where it was before, so the the client doesn't see anything happen like any see anything happen. If it's once every few hours, it's not gonna you know throw it at them. If it's once every minute, obviously that's a problem. So we have code in there for that. We have code code in there for making sure that if it freezes after a certain amount of time, it'll still keep it'll it'll move forward. It'll move the playlist forward anyway. So even though a video is frozen, we can still go in there and move the playlist to the next item and the, the next item will play and it'll kind of move the thing. Th- so you, so the client's not seeing a dead screen for hours. You're seeing it for only a few minutes. You, they're not going to notice that in real-time environments. But really what it comes down to is knowing your limitations. So the problem the problem is, is we have to now develop an application probably for specifically Android and not use a web view because... There's just not there's just not enough troubleshooting that we can do to limit to to get it down to being zero and being 100% uptime all the time, especially with these larger media applications, larger media playlists and and those really small videos with very low frame rates. They're like WebView is just not good at playing that on every single device. On some devices, fantastic. On some devices, not so good. So we have to get we have to get to a point where we can kind of maybe redo the application inside of in android in um maybe in kotlin maybe just in java we, we we don't know yet but that's kind of the process we're going to uh right now it's kind of just it's it's not as big of a problem now we have hundreds of uh installations around, all all across america i think it's in the thousands now actually uh and they're, they're running pretty well but we, i still get a call here and there being like oh that froze up and i go in check check the device let it run for a few days and see if i can catch the error that that's the kind of stuff like that this is the kind of stuff that's really complicated with uh troubleshooting usually my troubleshooting consists of a like you know an hour maybe maybe even less of finding the error because i i'm so i i know the code that i wrote so well that it's it's a little bit easier for me to go in and actually point pinpoint where the the problem is happening 
But again, I wanted to give a, I wanted to bring up a, a larger and more complicated issue so that people know that it's not always going to be like, oh, it's a five second fix. Yes, there are going to be more complicated and where you're going to have to implement a more sophisticated way of trying to find of trying to find the issue. And when when you're going to have to have patience, like longevity testing is very you're going to have to let the device run for eight hours. You're going to have to let the device run overnight. You're going to have to, you know, sometimes I would wake up, I would have the device running overnight. And I would like the first thing I wanted to do was check because I had a fix in that I was hoping would work. So like it, it's that kind of stuff and it's a constant battle and you're going to, you're going to have some moments where you're like, Oh, the device has been running for six hours. I really hope that this, this fix works. And you're, you're, you're kind of go, going, going at it with some other problems. And all of a sudden the device crashes and you go back and you have to context switch and start fixing this problem. So it's a, it's a complicated world out there. The, the, the different bugs that are out there is going to be a different method of trying to get them trying to understand what they are, but just, just know that you'll always get there and just be patient sometimes and uh, step away from it sometimes as well. Make sure that you're not fully integrated into it because you're just going to drive you crazy. If you kind of have like a little bit of a break and you go back into it, it might help. So yeah, that's, that's my, uh, that's my story. So I'll pass it off to Matt because he has a kind of a different take on troubleshooting stories. So I actually, I wanted to mention one thing about your story, which was, I think important to to mention is Mm. like we mentioned that, you know, you shouldn't be band-aiding stuff. Like you should understand the fix and you should understand what's going on. Yeah. But like, don't, I think, I think like that story is really, is really key because like, don't, like, if, if the technology has like a problem, like you guys understand the problem with the player and that, yeah. and then, and then you have like a fix and like some people would be like, Oh, that's a band-aid. But it's like, but there's no way for you to fix the, the root problem. Like you're not working on the web view, you know, like, yeah. like you're using the web view. So like, you know, at some point, sometimes you have to, like in, in your case, it's not even really a bandaid. It's you're looking at the objective at the end of the day. You're looking at the objective of the project. You're being like, okay, this needs to be like fixed. We can't fix the root. So let's, let's like, you know, use the, use the technology we have at our disposal mm-hmm. and fix it in this way. So I think that's really key for people. Cause like some people will like, you know, kill themselves. They'll go like freaking crazy staying up all night being like, I found the problem. I understand what's going on, but there's no fix. And then they'll like want to switch like full code base and this, that, and the other thing. Mm -hmm. But sometimes like a workaround or just a different way to use it is needed. And like, it isn't like, you know, a bandaid is a quick fix and it's like really almost sloppily done. Usually Mm -hmm. this isn't a bandaid. This is just a solution. It's just not the same as going in and being like, Oh, I forgot to set this as a one. Yeah. You know, it's not something as, as cut and dry as that. So I just think that that's important to, and that's a good thing that you brought that up. Yeah, definitely. Um, so my, my, uh, crazy story, this is the craziest, uh, this is the craziest troubleshooting I've ever done. Uh, I was in it for a while, so I've done a lot of troubleshooting. And, uh, so this was like VPN gateway failure. Um, so this is not web, uh, web dev related, but like it, like the procedure still, still applies. Um, I will like full disclosure. I did change some rudimentary details about the project just for security purposes. So, but you're going to still get the gist of the, of the, uh, of the story. But anyway, so a brief kind of background. So for, if you don't know, a VPN is a virtual private network and allows you to be virtually connected to a network basically. And what it does is it, it, and a VPN gateway handles your device logging into that network essentially. So for example, let's say you have a bunch of smart home devices and you can only control those devices on your home network. You've set it up so that it's not accessible from like outside. But let's say sometimes you do need to do that. 
So what you could do is you could set up your smartphone's data connection to VPN, in VPN, which is establishing a tunnel, that's what they call it, establishing a tunnel into your home so that you get like your proper rent or your proper uh, local IP, which is normally something like 192.168.0. something on most like just home routers, right? So you could VPN in so that you're, you know, quote unquote, connected to your home like you would be regularly. And then you could control your smart home devices, assuming your security and everything is set up properly. Um, like I said, when you're connected to the VPN, it's referred to as like tunneling or like you have a tunnel up or a VPN tunnel. So if I mention that going forward, just so you know what that means. So basically what what the actual scenario was in my case was basically we had a, we needed a mobile device to connect to a VPN and be able to access a word doc on one server and then stream a video from another server. So basically it connects in and just does those two things real easy, real simple, whatever. So we, so what was, what, what broke and this is crazy was the VPN or sorry, the mobile device was able to connect to the VPN. So the gateway appeared to be working. It was able to establish a tunnel. It was like a stable tunnel. There was no problems with that, whatever. And it was unable, though, to access the dock or access the video. So it's like, okay, we got we to gotta start, you know, going through the thing. So we checked if the device was actually connecting to the tunnel. So, like, maybe the device is reporting wrong. Maybe there's something wrong with the gateway, whatever. But it was connecting properly. You know, the, the device was saying, hey, I'm connected. The gateway was like, hey, this device is connected. And we gave it this IP and everything. But then we go and check. And we go, okay, did the device get the did the device get the right IP? So we gave a certain pool of IP addresses to the VPN gateway to give to the give to the mobile devices or things that connected to the VPN gateway. And sure enough, it was getting the right IP. It was getting the default gateway. It was getting the whole thing. It was getting all that. So there's a check that's working. So then you go, okay, I don't know what's going on. So I said, okay, maybe it's a maybe it's a firewall issue. So I say, okay, I'm going to steal an IP. So I'm going to take it out of the pool of the VPN. So I'm going to take it right off the end of it, usually is what I'll do. And I'll pull, like, pull that one out. And I'm going to apply it to a device that's in the network. So I'm going to be actually on the network. I'm not going to use the VPN. I'm cutting out the VPN. I'm eliminating the VPN for a moment. And I'm going to test it. And I test it and it works. It was you know able to stream, able to see it. So I'm like, okay. So now we know that these, these IPs are fine. So it's not like you know the firewall is blocking this IP. So we know that these IPs are fine. We also now know that the internal network is working and we know that the video is working and we know that the dock works. So that eliminates a whole crap ton of stuff. Okay. Fair enough. So now it's like, Hmm, it's probably, probably the VPN gateway or, you know, something's going on there. So what we'd started doing was we started doing what's called sniffing traffic. So we, we put on a, a, a traffic sniffer. Um, I believe it was Wireshark. Um, and we put on this traffic sniffer and we were, we were going through it and going through it and going through it. And we kept like, you know, dumping logs. So we would like, you know, connect the device, connect the, the mobile device to the VPN and then like, you know, try to hit the, the video or then try to hit the word doc. And we do this over and over again. What was really bizarre is, you know, normally when you sniff traffic, if you've ever done it, you'll see things like, you know, oh, error or, oh, this has been administratively blocked. It means like, oh, gotta, I gotta open this port or like, oh, we couldn't route this because of this or like, you know, you'll see something that will point you toward like, oh, this device isn't working or, oh, this thing isn't working or this route isn't here, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We never saw that. We saw nothing. Like, it's like the device isn't there, but the device was getting the IP. So we're like, okay, this is kind of weird. So we got a second device and we're like, okay, we're going to connect these simultaneously and see what's going on here. So you got the first device, it's connected to the VPN, it's fine. Got a second device, connected to the VPN, 
and it 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 also got an IP. Like there wasn't any IP overlap, there wasn't any conflict. So we got we got the sniffer running. We try to hit the two, doesn't work. So it's like okay, now, now keep it, keep this in mind that you know we're working on this for like I think it was like upwards of two weeks during all the time that we had between all our daily tasks that we had to do. So we're like you know we're doing this over and over and over again, over and over and over again, testing different things, trying it out, and we got to the point where we were like okay. I'm going to see if this, if I can even force the traffic to work. So I went in and I set up a static row. So I set up a static row to the, um, to the, like the, the word doc. And then I set up a static row to the, to the, uh, what do you call it? The, the video. So I set it, set them up. We connect the device and it worked. It worked. And it was like, okay, okay, okay. Maybe the router's messed up. But then, then we think, wait a second here. This is where it starts getting really messy. Wait a second here. We, we did that whole thing where I, like, like I already described, I pulled something out of the pool. Like I pulled an IP out of the pool. I applied that to one of the, I applied that to one of the devices like, internally. And then I tested it. So the router's working. It routes that IP. It knows where everything is. And this was before the static route. So what the heck? Plus like static routes kind of get messy. Like you got to like make sure they're well documented and you don't want to, you know, if, if let's say in the future it needed to access like a Word doc, the video, and then like something else, like, you know, I don't know it needed to pull a different, like a spreadsheet from another, another server. Like you got to add another static row. Like it's not as dynamic and it's a bit of a mess. So we're like, okay, something, something seriously wrong here. So we go, okay, we got to figure out what the hell. So we've been, and all this time we've been researching, going through forums, reading countless pages. Like it's, it's just, it's nuts. Like people are calling us. Like it's it like we're getting like tech staff to help us. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. So basically we find out that, it's almost like a baseline networking thing. I'm not like a networking expert to be clear, but how, how I understand it, it's like a very baseline networking thing was failing here. It's called NDP network discovery protocol and NDP kind of like flies out everywhere and allows like routers and stuff to actually like discover things like, Oh, something like connected to the network and this is its IP and this is how you get to it. So that like, let's say, you know, I connect to my Wi-Fi with my phone and then like, let's say Mike does the same thing. I could like, you know, send him depending, you know, if we had an app, I could like send him, a, like a file over Wi-Fi because it knows where each other are basically. So like that wasn't being sent. It wasn't being generated. It wasn't being sent and nothing was discovering this device. It was connecting. So a mobile device was connected to the VPN. Like I said, the router was giving it the proper IP and it was giving it the proper, de- uh, like the whole, the whole thing, the default gateway, the default gateway. It was doing all of that, but it wasn't discoverable. So then nothing could talk to it. It'd be like, Hey, I need to talk to this device. And it'd be like, I don't know what you're talking about basically. So, the static routes, like that, like the static routes kind of pointed us toward that. It was like, okay, there's something, there's something going on here. So we said, okay, maybe the VM is damaged. Maybe the OS is damaged. You know, we've been in here for weeks and been messing around, doing like a fine tooth comb, going through it, going through it, going through it. Can't find anything wrong. So, you know, we've been messing stuff, you know, when we've been messing around with little things, you know, how like, like servers and everything else have like hundreds and whatever of configuration. No, no one's configuration is perfect. So we were like, you know, changing little configuration changes. Like, oh, this probably won't fix it, but let's, you know, clean it up here and there. So we thought maybe one of those little quote unquote cleanups broke it. That, so we, we, we said, okay, we spin up another, you know, virtual machine. We, you know, same OS. We reinstall the VPN gateway software. We're, you know, fucking around with it. And it still, still doesn't work. We're like, okay, same error. Like, what the hell is going on here? So what ended up being the problem was, we like I I set up the static routes like like because the people had to use this like the the other workers had to use this 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 like testing setup 
So I, I said the hell with it. I set up the static routes and then like I well documented it internally. So like, you know, the team could look at it and I, I made like a little table of like my static routes. So, you know, you know how to add them, you know, in tandem if you need, if you needed that, that extra, you know, uh, that Excel sheet, like I mentioned earlier, if you need that spreadsheet on another computer. What ended up happening was, is we found that there was, and I posted on a couple of forums and what ended up happening was the VPN gateway software that we were using had a bug in it, or so we assume had a bug in it. And we don't know whether it was something specific to our network or what, but other people were reporting it. Very few people, but other people were reporting it. And what ended up happening was, is we just like, no matter what we did, we, we couldn't, we couldn't like get that thing. Like I said, the NDP just wasn't happening. And what we ended up doing was, I think we were using like, I don't know, version two or something. And we needed that for testing, like version two and, and upward. But we said, okay, okay, we're going to, you know, take version two of the VPN gateway off. We're going to install like 1.5 or something, an old version. And it worked. So we, so at that point, now we know, okay, like something's wrong with version two and up, but not any, like not many people are reporting it and whatever. So I literally went on the forum posted my my fix told them like you know this is like my fix is essentially a workaround but it's again kind of like mike's thing it's something that we can't fix like i'm not working on the vpn gateway software you know it's a it's a it's a vendor it's a company like they got to do it and they, that's that that's basically what ended up happening i found that other found that like ridiculous solution with the static roads like it sounds easy but like the investigation was the craziest thing ever um that i've done anyway and that's 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 basically the moral of the story. I basically reported it on the official forum, made sure I documented everything right. We ended up getting it working so that people could use it, which is all people really care about, the users. That's all they really care about. And that's it. That's the best we could do. Um, and then I, I believe, and I don't know whether I'm remembering this correctly because it was years ago now, but I believe I was told that in like a future version when they updated, it did actually end up working because somebody like removed one of the static routes and then like had updated the VPN software and it started working. So it ended up being like a rather complex problem within the VPN software where, you know, I'm not blaming that VPN, you know, gateway vendor. Like they, like that's such a random problem and it probably was affecting only certain people. So that was my experience with that. Uh, pretty long winded and pretty ridiculous, but that, that, uh, that's that. I don't know <laughs> if you have any other comment with that, Mike, but uh, I think we can jump into web news if you want. Yeah, and you know what? I'll I'll add some a little bit to that. So like like you said with the updated version or the version I just like it updated it and now it doesn't work, right? Right. I think that happens a lot more often than not. <laughs> like I don't know my major problems, my like major troubleshooting issues were probably caused by updated versions. Like one of them was updating jQuery. Right. Broke like some really random thing and just like one of the little the features that one of our clients used just doesn't work with a newer version of jQuery. I mean, I like that that's happened. I think we I had a slider issue where I updated the, the, the source of the slider because I wanted one of the features that they added. And yeah, that broke that broke another feature like when you're updating something, make sure you know that it's probably going to break it and you're going to need to do another series of tests whenever you update any library that's that's another reason why i try to stay away from using libraries for absolutely every little piece of my code like if if it's something very simple like even maybe a, a light box sometimes i won't use a library even though there's some really good light box libraries out there because i know that if if it ever happens that i need to update that library or if i bring in another library and there's some sort of incompatibility between the two that that puts more complexity on the code 
Um, so yeah, just be careful when updating any sort of software or any sort of libraries you have on your on your production devices or on your production uh, code bases. So yeah, that's that's what I'll add to that, and I'll let you uh, introduce the web news. Sure. So actually, that's a really good point too. Just one last little quick point is there's a reason why a lot of enterprise guys don't like updating their Windows. Because, like, you know, if you have, like, some random, you know, enterprise-specific software, maybe even, like, in industry, right, where the software doesn't update as much as consumer software does, like, apps update, like, every day or, like, every week, whereas, like, you know, this software might be 20 years old, and then, like, Windows will just, like, remove a DLL that's needed and in, like, an update because, like, it's like, oh, like, you know, 0.000004% of users use this, I'm going to pull it. Yeah. And then it's like, oh, fuck, that 0.00004 was, like, a major, like, I don't know, oil rig or something. Mm-hmm. You know, that's serious, right? So there's a reason why people don't like to update, and that's that's the reason. So Yeah, that's for sure. Um, so let's jump into web news. Uh, so mm-hmm. web news, and we've already touched on this, but like I want to kind of have like a proper conversation because I think it's important. It's, um, so I've titled it, Experience Doesn't Trump Research. So basically, I'm going to go back through uh, basically what, what we're talking about, and then Mike and I'll have a conversation about it. So um, Googling and researching um, isn't something to shy away from. I know a lot of people think that like, oh, you looked at the – looked at the documentation like you don't know what you're doing or whatever but no 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 no. like when you're using a new framework or a new technology or or even if i just am using it i'll frequently have like the documentation like the official documentation actually on my like on, on like my second screen and i'll just like pull it up all the time um and like this is really key like you can't commit everything to memory like there's literally like thousands of features available in most complex software and hardware these days and like it's impossible to you know, remember everything. Like I, I it, it really sucks when like a client from like, you know, an older project will contact us and be like, Hey, like I need, I want to implement this one thing. And it's like, I remember, and I knew how to do that, but I don't know how to do it now. Like, I just can't remember. Cause it's like some old CMS or something that we've moved right. on from. Right. So it's like one of those things that kind of sucks, but like you still, but you still have the, and this is kind of the key thing is like, you still have the, the intuition and the knowledge to relearn that quickly and then like go and re-implement it. And that usually you would need to use that official doc. So there's nothing, nothing wrong with that. Um, also, because everything is so, has like thousands of features and thousands of parts and everything, it's impossible to anticipate everything. Like, like that's why there's recalls for stuff. That's why there's like, you know, major hot fixes that have to go up. That's why things like servers get pulled down and get put back online. It's because like, you know, it was, it was engineered for this and maybe the environment changed at one point or like one random use case, you know, that was again, 0.0004% of the people didn't think, you know, or like that used it. And they, everyone thought like, oh, we'll just like kind of kick them out, like move them out. And then it ends up being a major, you know, that's a major 0.0004%, you know, like a major client uses it or something. Mm -hmm. That's why things get re-engineered, those hot fixes, et cetera. Um, and you, and like I said, you start getting muscle memory and intuition and you start, you know, r- rising your, like a, making your research skills a lot better and you, you end up making research notes and that type of thing. So it kind of makes you like a more proper quote unquote technician for like software engineering or even IT work, like, a, like I've mentioned throughout. Um, so yeah, I think that's a kind of a good like conversation point. I don't know like what specific you want to add to that, Mike, but like, I feel like, I feel like there's like, um, an aura of shame sometimes in the industry mm-hmm. when people ask questions. So I, I'll, I'll let you maybe touch on that. Maybe even some of the experiences we've had on like stack overflow or something. Yeah, for sure. Like I, I was actually recently reading a post on our web dev on Reddit and there was a person saying like, uh, listen, I'm, I have 10 years experience in the industry in web mm-hmm. development and I'm daily, I'm on the daily looking up stuff on Google. And I think that's never going to go away i don't i don't know like 
I know that there's a few like coding interviews where you have to it has to be closed book uh, style, but I think even that's kind of going away nowadays. I think the coding interviews now will more like more likely than not just be assignments that they send you and you try to like do and then maybe just a few general knowledge questions during the interviews is what is what I would expect uh, for the future because knowledge knowledge of of one specific thing enough where you can go in and just start coding it from scratch is kind of it's almost scary to have to have that yes after probably 10 or 15 20 years you can do that in some in some way in some capacity but realistically that that's almost a hindrance because you're not looking at the newer ways of doing things like if you're if you're a 10 years 10 year experience javascript developer and you haven't looked at google in 10 years you're coding you know back in Yes, whatever, 20, 20, 2005, 2010. Like, it's not, it's not necessarily a good thing. You want to always be on top of the, of the ways of doing it. And you want to always do things as efficiently as possible and Googling it and looking at maybe not always going with the first answer on everything, going in and reading the answers and understanding what they, what they are. That's an important skill as well. Like use it, using that knowledge of Googling, using that knowledge of, of, of research to, understand a topic better and then implement that that solution that you that you found that works for you and that looks like it's a current solution that'll work in the future those kind of skills are almost more important than being that developer that's 10 that has 15 years experience and is able to write from scratch because he might be using outdated technology it might have security vulnerabilities he doesn't know he's not googling i mean i'm sure that those people don't exist i'm just you know making making up this amazing 15 15 year experience web developer that doesn't google but uh yeah that, it just knows every framework <laughs> exactly like don't don't be afraid to google like it's not it's not a scary thing and um everyone like i, I i've known a bunch of people that are like well i'm afraid that if if i google every single thing i'm not going to learn anything that's totally false that's the point of googling it you're learning it as you as you're implementing it maybe don't always just copy paste the, the the code just look look at what it's doing and then only use the the pieces that you need like sometimes you'll you'll find an answer within an answer right but uh it'll it'll be like solving 15 different things and you copy paste that whole thing and just use one little part of it try not to do that too much even though sometimes time time constraints and stuff like that will make you do it but try to know what's actually solving your problem in those answers and you can fo- like follow up be like oh well i found the solution maybe i can google the solution and find more information on that solution that specific one so it, it it's a it's a weird rabbit hole you go down when you're when you're trying to troubleshoot and when you're trying to learn new things when you're doing research uh where it's like it's almost like one thing will lead to another will lead to another will lead to another and then you'll get your perfect answer most of the time so yeah those are that that's what i'm thinking like when i with with research and with with googling like i don't know if i'd be able to do this job without the internet right now Hmm. i think that's i think that's like a fair that's a fair point to say too is is like even like like if i'm just thinking off the top like if you look at kind of like a polar opposite industry, so like literally like an industry um, industrial thing where like you're fixing cars, for example, or like a trade, you know, if a new valve or a new car comes out, they need to look at it because it's like proprietary, right? Like the, yeah. the frameworks are, are very much like that. It's not like, you know, it's not like, like the mechanic doesn't understand like how valves work. It's the fact that like this valve might have like a 45 degree angle with like a special emergency button to press and like three ways to flush it. Whereas this other one has two and it's like, how the hell would he, first of all, remember that unless he's working on just that type of car and how the hell would he know 
like what that engineer engineered right even yeah. and even that engineer like that engineer it probably engineers valves every day mm-hmm. you know if if he's asked to like you know oh hey we need a revision too because like this valve sticks like he probably doesn't remember the 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 valve that he made for i don't know some car 13 years ago he's probably made like a thousand valves so he's like oh i gotta look it up and he'll look up his spec like there's a reason why things are documented mm-hmm. and going to school is basically like googling it like yes you're doing it yourself but, like, think about it, like, all it is is a person has essentially learned it at some point, whether it be from a book or from Google, and then they're hired because they know the stuff, and they teach you. But you have to remember, too, that they have a prep thing. Like, there's a whole thing of, like, you know, they prep for their class. If they're a good teacher, they'll prep for their class. They'll, like, have, like, you know, their book there, and they'll, like, they'll reference stuff. Sometimes they'll say, like, hey, I don't remember that, but I'll get back to you if you have a question. Like, they'll email you back later. Mm-hmm. Like, there's, you know, people people don't you don't remember um, everything. And we had a really good teacher for our embedded class, our last embedded class uh, in our, in our final semester. And I remember he said that one of the things we, we learned, uh, I think he was, he was teaching us how to make drivers and like, he ended up making, like making our driver set for us. And then we used them. Cause like we were trying to learn basically how to use, like how to program more or less at that point and like how to think of it. And he said, like, he's like, I don't remember half this crap. He's like, honestly, he's like, I looked in the manual. I figured out, because he worked on tons of microcontrollers. He's like, you know, I pulled out the manual. and was like, oh, I need to, like, figure out how to turn on, you know, pin one. So I figured out how to do it. And then I, like, wrote a driver to make it do it. And then that driver is like an API. So then in our class, we would write, like, you know, general input output dot on. Like, you know, one dot on. So the first one would turn on or something. But that like one dot on runs like his little driver that does it. But he even said to us, I don't remember how this driver works. I could figure it out again. I can go and like figure it out. And it's like documented. And I have like bookmarks in my book for in my manual slash book for this thing. But I don't remember. I don't commit to memory how like every single microcontroller turns on its output pins. I don't remember that type of stuff, Mm -hmm. which is which is like super interesting. And it's almost like inspiring to hear. It's like I don't need to literally know everything. And, like, if you're a jack-of-all-trades, like, it doesn't, like, a lot of people will think that's almost a negative. Uh, like, maybe maybe half and half think it's negative. But, like, it really isn't necessarily a negative. Because, like, the guy who's super experienced in, like, let's say just one type of microcontroller is going to be absolutely useless when, a, when, like, that company goes under, that microcontroller manufacturer goes under. Or maybe the company that he's working for switches microcontroller manufacturer. He's going to be, like, virtually in the same boat as like the newbie with the exception of the fact that he has probably, you know, better research skills potentially. And, or like, you know, he just has more experience, but the guy who was in the department who was always working on like, you know, 10 different types of microcontrollers, his research skills are going to be way, way and far beyond that guy who was working on the one type. Mm-hmm. And, and he's going to have way more intuition. Cause he's going to be like, Oh, I, I know that some manufacturers use a zero. Some manufacturers use a one. Some use a five. You know, he knows. Mm-hmm. He knows the thing. And then he'll know generally. It's like that intuition where I said, like, a good technician will be like, sounds like the hard job, but I got to check. And he'll have, like, a narrowed view. Whereas that other guy, you know, he's been around a long time maybe. So maybe he has that intuition. But it's not going to be as sharp as the guy who uses that intuition all the time and, like, earns earns those, like, research skill points, if you will. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, no, for sure. Like it's, it's, it is really a skill point. Like you need to know how to research. It's important. And people, you know, complain about school sometimes and the fact that it's, it's not real, real life and all that. But really, you're Googling a lot at school to figure out all these problems. This is all new era stuff, by the way, like, you know, 20 years ago, you couldn't do this. But now, like you have to be able to 
to keep up with the industry. And really, I, I still, I, I very much believe that a person that's stuck in the old way of, I have to know everything and I have to just, you know, memorize it and that's it. That is very, it's a huge hindrance on the company he's working for because they're not evolving with the times. Like I, there's so many times that I've gone into an answer that of a question where I learned that what I was doing in general was old, old technology. And there's a way better way to do this. And like, I would go in and replace the code that I was even that that even caused the issue in the first place with a newer, more efficient technology. I've done that many, many times. So like, it's super interesting when when that mm -hmm. stuff like that, like happens, right? When you have to when you can even like, you're even like, self reflecting on it, you know, for sure. Yeah, like, I can give an example like this, this last week, I was working with uh, promises. And, uh, before, before promises, I would work with callbacks. And then I went into a callback thread on Stack Overflow and people were like, oh, you should work with promises. And I, I, I looked into promises. I thought, yeah, this is, this is a nice, nicer way of writing a callback. Why not work with promises? And then like a week ago, I was going into a promise thread in Stack Overflow and people were like, oh, well, you should be using async awaits and stuff. And, and I, I looked into that and yeah, that, that's true. It, async awaits are the future of, of that, the callback promise kind of scenario. Um, so it, it's interesting that like being able to reach out and get all these answers is also moving me forward, like moving us as developers forward and being able to kind of be in the, be on the top of the industry, maybe not all the time, but at least in these little kind of problems that we, we come up, like it's constantly going to come up. Like you think I'm going to memorize async awaits and stuff like that? No, I'm going to go back and I'm going to Google how to do it again. And I'll, maybe I'll find what's next. What's after async awaits and you have to be willing to you have to be willing to really dig in and like evolve as a developer and researching on Google and researching on other platforms definitely helps with that. I think I think that's a really good point too because I think a lot of guys too that are starting out like I mean I probably use really rudimentary javascript because I'm just controlling styles and like uh like like I won't know all that type of stuff, right? Like, you know, I won't know like everything about it. Like I know what a callback is, but I like I, I don't wouldn't know about promises and this that and the other thing. And I think that a lot of people would see that as something discouraging, especially if they're just starting out where they're like, well, damn, I don't know anything. Like I, like I, I use, like, I remember I was using, I, I needed to loop through something. So I just did what I knew to do. I'm like, okay, I'll use a for loop. And I just used a for loop. And then I don't know, like, I think it was on medium or something. A couple days later, I went on there and they were like, for loops are like, like, what the fuck <laughs> are you doing? Yeah. And how I was like, how well, dare you? I'm like, I counted up to five. Like, I'm not going to change that. So like, I think, you know, like, yes, like, Mm-hmm. I'll read that and like maybe I'll be like, hey, this is a better way to do a loop. But like I'm counting to five here, guys. Like, you know, four loops are still around for a reason. So like, you know, d- you know, evolve absolutely. Like I absolutely agree with that. Mm-hmm. But don't feel bad if like the thing you made yesterday, you know, was a for loop. Like I don't care. Like I, I have to go and actually fix that tomorrow night. So yeah. I'm going to use that for loop. I don't care. Like, you know what I mean? Because it still works. And the customer doesn't doesn't care either. It's fast. It's efficient. It works. It's not like it's a security thing. I'm counting to five. You know, um, but, but the cool thing is, is that, yeah, you're not going to replace it all the time. I just gave one, one little example, right? Like most of the time I'll just keep going and troubleshooting the thing that I'm working on. But yeah, like yeah. the fact that you learn that, yeah, for loops are like, there's other ways of doing it. Like even like you don't have to replace it, but you've learned that there's other way of doing this. And in the next project where you need it, for, obviously this is kind of like an abstraction of a, an actual problem. Like a for loop is a for loop but like when, I mean, when yeah you, when it's a pretty need... simple scenario yeah exactly <laughs> when you when you need another when you need another uh for loop you'll look in maybe and try this other way of doing it a more like a more modern way maybe it's more efficient maybe it's not like sometimes you get the wrong advice that's why i said google the answer 
Like you get the answer, Google it and see what people are saying about that. If there's a lot of threads about it, if people are talking positively about it, if there's a lot of, you know, this first that and people are saying like, oh yeah, I love this way, way more than that. It's worth looking into even more and maybe implementing into your future projects or your current ones. So yeah, be, be, be aware that not everything out there is correct. Like, like, you know, not everything on the internet is right. Everyone I'm hoping knows that. Although some people I, I, I question. I mean, there's lots of, like, it's all opinion and a lot of comments, right? Yeah. Like, that's a, that's a key, that's a key thing. Like, if I had to make, if I had to count up to five right now, like, even though I read that thing, like, I'm, like, like you said, like, I'm, I now, I know there's another way to do it. So if I needed a complex counting method, I would absolutely look that up. But yep. if I need to count up to five tonight, like, again, or like, if I'm fixing that one that's pre-existing tomorrow, I'm not going to change it. I'm just going to, like, keep it. And I don't feel bad for it either. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, as long as it works, as long as it's, you know, secure, it does the objective. You know, people like freak out, but it's like at the end of the day, if someone's using your API, like let's say you, you, you're serving an API of some kind, the guy's not looking at what your API is doing. He's only looking at the, the functions or like the API, like calls that you're yeah. allowing him to do. Like, you know, you, you're going to be doing something that's seen as disgusting to somebody else and, you know, vice versa too. You might be like, fuck, that guy starts at like one, like, why isn't he starting at zero or like whatever, <laughs> right? You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's whatever, it's whatever okay. happens or however they address. And I think another thing actually, that's a good thing to bring up too, about the internet is like, there's a lot of, there's a, there's a ton of like toxicity I find on like stack overflow and stuff where like a newbie will ask a question and they'll be like, oh, this is a duplicate question from 2009. And it's like, but he's so inexperienced that he like looked around, noticed a lot of his answers were on stack overflow Mm -hmm. and so he went you know the person made an account he or she made an account and then they you know they asked the question be like hey i need to like figure out how to hover like a hover effect works Mm -hmm. and sure like sometimes it's lazily done but sometimes you can tell from what they're saying like let's say they'll you know they'll summarize what they've looked up so far you can tell from what they're saying that they're very inexperienced and it's like literally their first button that they're making yeah and people like like come in there and the moderators will come like running in and they'll be like, oh, man, this is like, this is a duplicate. Like, what are you guys talking about? Like, you know, look, look, look this up more. But it's like, he didn't know what even to look up. Like, this is a stepping stone. And he's learning, like we already said several times, the research skill. Yeah. You know, he's learning that thing. I remember I was on a, uh, a thing once where there was some sort of bizarre bug, um, which I think has like been since fixed. But there was a bizarre bug where it was like, if you nested too many like rels and like absolutes, like position rels and absolutes in into each other in a certain combination or something like that. It was a couple of years ago. Now it would always shift your stuff down one pixel. Mm-hmm. So they were like discussing, like, how do I fix this? And I, I literally said like my actual, actual fix is to like, it's a glitch clearly. Cause no other browser is doing it. Like there's something wrong. So I said my fix, which is more or less a workaround is like, you like wrap, you like take the wrapping thing. I don't exactly remember exactly what I typed, but it's like, you like wrap the whole thing. And then you like, you just position rel and you move, like you mar- move it up. I did like a margin top negative one. And they were like, this isn't a solution. Like this is ridiculous. And like, I got downvoted and the comments that were ripping on me got upvoted. So like, that's a super toxic environment. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. I can handle that, like whatever. But like for somebody who was, who would be like totally new and have, and this like learning it. And then, you know, a bug is, is, is now plaguing them. They think yeah. they're doing something wrong. Yeah. You know, and it, like, imagine if they had posted a solution or something like I don't even post on Stack Overflow anymore. It's just like, okay, I'll just, I'll use it as a resource, but I'm not going to post on there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. For the it, most part. It, it can get pretty toxic in there. I've seen, I've seen some good stuff uh, where if someone posts 
a thing that's already been posted. Sometimes they'll link the thread that will solve that issue. I think that's an okay way of doing it. But it is, you're right that it's not it's not teaching them how to actually uh, Google that, like how to actually get to that solution themselves. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think a, a more positive way of doing it would be to actually in the in the the answer right be like, listen, you gotta search for this, this, and this inside of Stack Overflow or on Google, and then you'll find it. Instead of being like, oh, this has already been done, close the thread. Like that, it's it is a fine line. Like a lot of people are bad at research, and people are not willing to believe that, or they just think that they're lazy. Because mm-hmm. obviously there are some lazy people that just don't want to do it. But still, like we have to give people benefit of the doubt sometimes and lead them in the right direction. So yeah, it's a good point. Yeah. Like, and I think even stack overflow uh, at one point, like I never read the article, but they had come out and said they're like, they even almost like admitted it or something like that. Like, don't quote me on this. Cause I've only saw headlines on it, but it was like stack overflow had come out at some point and said like, like they were acknowledging like there was toxicity. Yeah. You know, they like, they were like, fuck, like, you know, we understand this, like, you know, it's a lot of shit because it's, it, it's almost like even on, even on Reddit a lot where like you'll post something and then like a model come like running in to like police you. And it's like, dude, like I looked at the rules, let's say I looked at the rules, looked at what other people were posting. And then I posted something that was similar to it, but like, you know, I didn't copy anybody. It was like my post it's just the same type and like a model come running in and being like, oh, we can't have this on here. And it's like, I understand trying to clean up garbage. But it's like, if I'm doing something the same as everybody else, why aren't you clearing him up? Yeah. You know what I mean? And like, that'll, that applies to, you know, whether you're on a, uh, what do you call it? Like a regular subreddit, like the one for, for entertainment, or whether you're on like a serious subreddit for work, like even like, you know, r slash web dev or whatever. I've, I don't think I've posted on there, so I don't know how, how like policey they are. But there's a lot of stuff like posted on and they'll like come in immediately try to police it. Like, oh, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. This is getting up folks. We got to shut this down. Like this is too similar to like Jim Bob's post from 2004. Yep. It's like, well, I didn't look that up. Like what? Like, come on. I didn't, I didn't go and look into back into two. Th- Let me go back into the archives. Let me get like my, my world book 1999 for my Windows 98 PC. Let me make sure. Let me see if there's an, if I'm accidentally plagiarizing one of the sentences in there. Like, come on. I mean, that's, that's what the world's going to kind of come to if, right. Like, like there's just so much content that we can create as eventually all the contents is going to be plagiarizing in a way yeah like i mean then people like will blatantly copy stuff yeah i mean (sighs) okay well yeah all right (laughs) it's a it's see like even for us like it is like i mean this is exactly why it's the good web news like it's a it's a complex it's a complex issue it is and and it's it's i think newbies are the are almost the victim assuming they're trying like they're not being really lazy right yeah and not not actually researching, which I'm sure there's some people that don't research and then post asking questions without that. Like I've seen that before, but I've also seen the 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 other side where people are researching and they just don't know how. So benefit of the doubt. Yeah, and just keep on trucking if you're one of those victims of being <laughs> yeah. being policed off of a forum, I guess. Yeah. But uh, but I I don't know I won't I don't know if I I don't know if I value my my stack overflow uh, post rate that much anymore. Yeah. I kind of just, I, I'm at the point now where I kind of just want to get the, get the hustle going and get, you know, get my own shit going. So, mm-hmm. exactly. um, you have anything else to comment, Mike, or, uh, no, I think that's it. I think we've, uh, we've, we've got it pretty good. Yeah. We've, uh, we definitely covered a whole bunch. This has, uh, really been like a packed episode all the way from it to, you know, crazy video players to whatever else. Right. So, 
bunch of troubleshooting and whatnot. So, uh, thanks for listening, everybody. If uh, you can, connect, you can find us on uh, most of the socials via at HTML all the things. That's on Instagram and on Facebook. On Twitter, you can find us at HTML everything. We're also on Medium and GitHub, so you can look that up. And of course, all these links will be in the show notes. Feel free to leave a comment or a review on the platform you're listening to this on. And uh, we are signing off. 